Awkward, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, when you're expecting someone to talk and they don't, it's a little bit weird. Some of it feels a little bit off. Well, <laughs> I begin that way very awkwardly because uh, today's message is on the silence. Was, yeah, it's fitting. There you go. Connect these dots. And the silence is a period of time in the history of Israel where God, who had spoken to his people generation after generation, all the way from, you know, think about Moses to, uh, you know, the, to Joshua, through the judges and the prophets and the kings, and I mean, literally thousand years, over a thousand years, faithful testimony from God to his people, and then all of a sudden, silence, 400 years. And it's unexpected, and it's weird, and people feel like things are off, and it's uncomfortable. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we uh, continue our series that we're walking through the entire story of the Bible from cover to cover in uh, 12 weeks. And we, last week we wrapped up the Old Testament, and this week we're going to take this time to talk about, well, what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Next week we finally get to start the New Testament. I can't wait for that. But this morning we're going to spend some time talking about what is known as the 400 years of silence, 400 years of silence, and that it really is marked by what uh, the last couple of verses in the book of Malachi, who's the final prophet to Israel, he pins this in chapter 4, the last two verses found in the Old Testament, verses 4 and 5, let me read it, He's, he writes, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel, verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. In other words, I'm going to send, God's saying, I'm going to send someone of the stature of Elijah, and he's going to come, and he's going to have this, this preparing the way of the Lord where he's going to turn people children back to their fathers and the, the nation of Israel back to God before the final judgment comes. But then he lays down his pen and the nation of Israel doesn't have anyone else as a prophet for, like I said, 400 years until a guy named John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And John the Baptist, and recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is announced this way. Verse 16 says, and he, talking about John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord of people prepared. And that's what John the Baptist did. That he was the forerunner, the one who was uh, the, the, the prophet after this long period of silence that was to draw everybody's attention to the final, uh, fi to the Messiah who finally was coming. The promised Messiah that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Jamie talked about that at the beginning of the series. And that it's repeated, this promise, there's a Messiah coming. Well, finally, John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is the one. And he you know, he lets everybody know. He baptized Jesus, helps initiate the, the public ministry of Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week. Can't, like I said, can't wait to do that. But what we're going to spend some time on this morning is, 
hey, what, what in the world took place between Malachi laying down his pen and John the Baptist announcing Jesus at 400 years? What was going on with that? Have you ever wondered that? It's interesting. The reason we want to spend some time on this is because it's, it's, it's helpful, I think, to help us understand the, the context, the culture, the climate of, of what life was like in Israel when Jesus came. You ever wonder, why did Jesus get the reception he received when, when he showed up on the scene? This hopefully will help you understand that more fully. And, and my hope is that as we talk through this this morning, it will help the Bible come more alive to you. You can kind of see it within culture and context. And our big prayer within this entire series has been that God would use this series to grow in you a, a desire and a love for God's word that would, that would show itself up and that you would actually spend time reading God's word on a regular basis throughout the week. So that's, that's a big prayer for, for this, this whole series. And we're going to take some time just focusing on these 400 years, all right? So let me pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning, and you would help us understand your word to a greater uh, extent, and Lord, that out of that, you would grow in us a desire to read it and to understand what you have to say in there, because the Bible reveals you to us, or it's your communication to us about who you are and what you're like. Lord, give us a desire to know it because we, get, we want to know you. God, you're the best. And so uh, I pray you'd speak to us this morning and you'd be honored in our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at three major factors that were at play that kind of set the climate of this time when, right before Christ appeared that, that lent to the confusion and the mixed reception that Jesus received. So three big factors. The first one is a political factor. The second is a theological factor. And the third is a religious leader's factor, if you will. All right, so let's begin on the political side. This is kind of interesting. We'll get into a little, a little history here. If you uh, if you'll recall, leading up to this 400 years of silence, the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom, Judah, had been taken into captivity with, uh, with, through uh, Babylon. And that they had brought a lot of the Israelites into Babylon. Once they were there for 70 years, one of the major events that we hadn't really given a whole lot of time to, but a big major world event happened, which was that Babylon was overcome uh, by the Persians. And so there was an exchanging of hands between the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. And it's actually that that God used to allow the Israelites to move back to their land, back to Israel. Because it was the Persian kings that said, hey, no, we'll give you, we'll give you Israelites, uh, a freedom to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall. And so they did. But Israel, helpful to know, like they weren't free. Like they were still under the Persian control, the Persian empire. Then, <laughs> then later on, we'll see that they are actually handed off, not just from the Babylonians to the Persians, but to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And so what you have during these 400 uh, years is that the nation of Israel experiences incredible uh, humiliation, and though this sounds kind of strong, but like domination from these major world empires. And it really messes with the psyche of the Israelite people. 
Because, right, they, they're God's chosen people, and God called them to himself, and they've given them a land, and they're going to be this nation that's a light to all the world. And yet, during this period of time, they don't, they don't experience much independence. They just are handed off from one major power to another. And think, what's going on? And that during that time, God is silent. And that would mess with you, right? I mean, think about this, that the, uh, with the, um, well, let me just make, make note of this, that one of the reasons why Israel is handed off from one nation uh, to another, one empire to another, is because of their location. And that time of, uh, of the world, uh, their area of Palestine or where Israel's found was a really uh, important area to own because the nation of Egypt was really one of those like prime spots everyone wanted control of. Well, the way that you get to Egypt was to go through Jerusalem to go through Israel. So if you've got this map up here, you can see this, and you'll see that there's a, like this, you know, the, the outlined area. I, don't, I can't tell. I've got the speaker in my way. What, am I, what are we looking at? Okay, that, the Persian Empire. So you see where Jerusalem is. That brown area behind that, no one cared to own that part, right, because that's all desert. So no, one's, no one cares about that. But to get to Egypt or to get from Egypt up to the north, you had to go through Israel because that's the place where there's water and there are roads. And so Israel is just this place. It's almost this pond that's being used to really for their, you know, their locality, close to water and their road system, in order to own other places. And the nation of Israel like, was this, supposed to be this major nation. And yet they're just being like abused and used to get to even other places. Like it's really messes with the psyche of the people. Now here's, here's something that's kind of fun. To know about this period of history and all that took place during this time, you can, you can study it in two different ways. You can either study it by uh, studying history, which is good, or you can study it by reading the book of Daniel. And what's interesting about reading the book of Daniel is that Daniel wrote around 600 B.C., hundreds of years before this period of time, and yet he outlined in great detail what would take place during these 400 years. Like he wrote about it in advance. You might might think, okay, well, that, that sounds crazy, right? Well, it does sound crazy, but it's so amazing that like he wrote about it in such detail that in the early 20th century, many scholars said, okay, there's no way that Daniel was written prior to these events happening. He, it had to be afterwards. And so they came up with, a, with, a, you know, with a, uh, an idea, a theory that Daniel was probably written around 60 B.C., sometime around there. But then mid-20th century, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find copies of the book of Daniel that date prior to these events taking place. We think, how in the world could that be true? It's amazing prophecy, friends. And I just want to say, again, like, let's study and read the Bible. It is God's word. It's God's word. It's the only way you can explain these prophecies that Daniel has that it's God's word delivered to us. Study his word. So let me give you some examples of this. Daniel chapter 11 is the primary chapter I look at. The, the book of Daniel is just a whole book. It's fascinating to read. But in this specific context, in this political time, for the 400 years, Daniel writes, and here's some of the stuff that he says. All right? Um, okay, give me, give me some context. Uh, let's see. 
Okay, so the Persians, the Persians had been in power for quite a, period, uh, quite a while, and then uh, they make a mistake, and they pick a fight with the Greeks. Uh, namely, uh, Xerxes picks a fight with the Greeks, and so the Greek city-states begin coalescing over a period of time, 100 years, and Alexander the Great comes into power. Well, guys, Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 5 talk about that. I don't have time to get into it right with you right now, but go read it and study that, and you'll see that in da- Daniel chapter 11, 2 through 5, it talks about how that will take place, and that this one will rise to power is greater than the rest, and that then he also says that Alexander the Great, or this, you know, this, this one that's greater than the rest, will uh, rule for a time, but then he will uh, uh, not pass on his rule to his ancestors, but instead there will be four generals that break up his power. Well, guess that's, that's what happens. And what uh, during that time, you see that there's this ongoing, after Alexander the Great, there's this ongoing struggle between the, the north and the south, these generals. So you got the uh, Seleucid king, and you got the, uh, the uh, in the north, and you got the Ptolemies uh, in Egypt in the, in the south, and they are fighting each other. And then... Uh, and Israel is caught in this struggle the entire period of time. And then let's actually get into the passage. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 29, you find uh, Daniel talks about this. He says, at the appointed time, he, and he is, is uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the, uh, uh, the Seleucid king who is tra- traveling from the north to, to raid the south. And Antiochus Epiphanes in, in 168 B.C., this is the time frame, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 29, it says, uh, He will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. And in verse 30, it goes on to say, The ships of the western coastland will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Okay, this is, this is fascinating. Because history confirms that what happens is, is Antiochus, I can't say that guy's name, Epiphanes is going, he's traveling south, and the Roman ships actually pull up on the western coastland of the Mediterranean Sea, and, and, the, uh, and one of the Roman soldiers gets out, he draws a circle around uh, around Epiphanes and says, hey, you will make your decision right now whether you will turn back or not. And you have to make it before you move out of the circle. And Epiphanes says, I'm going back. And just as Daniel said, 100 years prior, he loses heart. And he heads back up north towards Jerusalem. Daniel continues in verse 30. It says, Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, which is speaking of the nation of Israel. And he will return and he will show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. In other words, uh, he says, If you give up your faith and you follow me, come to my side, then I'll, let, I'll spare you. But then it says, um, again in Daniel, he, uh, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and he will abolish the daily sacrifice and they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Well, guys, again, Daniel's writing about this hundreds of years prior to it happening. But history tells us that in 167 B.C., Antiochus does turn back, goes to Jerusalem, 
and he slaughters between 20,000 and 40,000 Jews. And then he goes into the temple. And he sets up an altar in the temple of God, an altar to Zeus. And on that altar, he sacrifices a pig. This is the abomination of desolation. This is like the most horrendous sacrilegious thing you could do in the nation of Israel. Because like history tells us like that actually happened. Daniel tells us a hundred years prior, hundreds of years prior, that it would happen. He goes on to say this. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. So there were a number of Jews who did, that knew their God and refused to follow him, refused to follow Epiphanes. And so they uh, fought, namely um, Matthias and, and, uh, um, uh, uh, and Judas Maccabees. They rise up and they get others to come and join them. And they fight for three years, they fight. And at the end, they win. And they win their independence from the Seleucid king. And Israel is able to enjoy freedom for 100 years, from 164 B.C. to 63 B.C. Now, guys, y'all might be familiar with that. Like, that's if you've got Jewish friends or if you personally celebrate Hanukkah. Like, that's what we're celebrating. That's what people are celebrating, that victory from the Maccabees during that period of time. Because Daniel wrote about that 100 years before it happened. He wrote about something that we still celebrate to this day. Because God's word is amazing, is it not? Like this is true prophecy that we know was written before it actually happened. How do you explain that? <laughs> you can't explain it. Other than that there's a real God. And he gave this to Daniel for us to know and have some verification. Like there's a true God. They did for read the word. All of that to say though. That with Israel, they did for 100 years experience some independence, which gave them some hope that maybe even though they were small in size, they could fight off these huge empires that they had been being passed down from, from one to, to another. But then in 63 B.C., uh, Rome was growing. Pompey shows up. He takes over Jerusalem, takes over Israel. And from that point on, 63 B.C., Israel no longer functions as an independent nation until 1948 when the United Nations reestablishes the nation of Israel uh, after the World War II. Again, the people in Israel think about their psyche, think about their confusion, think, man, they're just being handed off from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to having, you know, the Seleucid king to a little while independence and then to Rome. Think, man, what, God, where are you? God, where are you? And God is silent during that time. Many people still fought. Think about the zealots. The zealots were those in Israel who, who fought against the Romans. They're kind of like a guerrilla warfare kind of style where they'd pick off Roman soldiers whenever they can, still trying to fight for the independence of Israel. Uh, 
you might be familiar that Jesus, one of his uh, disciples was Simon the Zealot. And he was one of those guys who was still fighting for the independence until he followed Jesus. And he laid that down for another kingdom and following Christ. But like that sets some political context. That's what was going on during this period of time. It's one of the major factors that, it w- that led to the confusion and the reception that people had for Jesus when he shows up on scene. But that's just one. The second one is a theological confusion, okay? So on a theological side of things, uh, it really boiled down to not knowing how to interpret the prophecies about the coming Messiah, and that there was two camps. There was one camp that would say, okay, the, the, the must, the, the, it seems like the, the Messiah is going to come as a suffering servant who's going to suffer and even suffer at the hands of his own people. And then there's another camp that said, no, 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 the Messiah is going to come as the reigning king. He's coming as the reigning king, and he's going to set up his reign and his kingdom here from Jerusalem, and he's going to free us from Romans, Roman oppression and all that stuff, and there's going to be peace on earth. And guess both of those interpretations came directly out of the prophets. We talked a little bit about uh, that last week, but what you'll see, let me just show you some of these different uh, prophecies here and see how this could lead to some confusion. Like think about Isaiah chapter 56 says this, uh, Messiah speaking, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking and spitting. Well, like this is a prophecy about the beating that the Messiah was going to receive, the suffering servant was going to receive leading up to his crucifixion. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know, like this, this rings completely true with what happened. From the beard being plucked out, to being spit out, to being flogged, offered his back for this beating. Like this is a suffering servant. Let me give you another one. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says this. Surely he, the Messiah, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, brought us peace, was a pierce for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Again, Isaiah writing 600 years before the crucifixion. Those who read this think, okay, is he describing the, the, the Messiah? Like he's going to be pierced? He's going he's gonna to be beaten? He's going to suffer f- for us? Like how, how can this be? Let me give you another one. Micah, or sorry, Zechariah uh, 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly, bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Like this is a prophecy about how the, the Messiah would be pierced. Think about nails driven through him will be pierced. And those who do it will then later grieve and mourn for their hand in piercing the Messiah. Again, if you're familiar with the New Testament, what you find is that in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, Peter shows, Peter walks out into the streets of Jerusalem and begins preaching the first message of the church. And in it, he says to, the, the, to all, the, all those in Jerusalem who were there for Jesus' crucifixion, he says, God has sent the Messiah and you killed him. And people, 3,000 people, respond by saying, 
what have we done? What must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And on that day, 3,000 people are baptized, place their faith in Christ, and the church begins. Like, guys, this is that prophecy fulfilled. It's a suffering servant. It's, it's a suffering servant who suffers at the hands of his own people, and the people see what they've done later, and they mourn it. It's fascinating. And yet, you have these other prophecies. And people, again, it started confusion. Like, for example, look at this, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, if you're familiar, like this is, we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is a fulfilled in Jesus' birth. He comes out of Bethlehem. But what, what's it say about the Messiah born in Bethlehem? That he's going to come and he's going to rule. He's going to reign. So people think, man, the Messiah is going to be this reigning king. That's who we're looking for. Is, is he going to free us from Roman rule? Okay, another one. Um, Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Right. Again, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, you might be familiar with Part of this being fulfilled when Jesus' first coming, when he shows up on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. And he enters Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. And the people receive him and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they think, okay, here's the Messiah. He's fulfilling this prophecy. He's going to come and he's going to be the ruling king. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to free us from Roman rule. But that isn't what happened. Okay, give me, let me give you one more. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in the days of Judah will, uh, and the days of Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. In other words, the one that's called the Lord is our righteousness. The Messiah will come and he will save us, people thought. He's going to make this place safe. He's going to be a reigning king. And there was this confusion. What are we looking for in the Messiah? Are we looking for one that's going to become king? Are we looking for one who's going to come and suffer? And they didn't know what to look. And so you see these different receptions of Jesus. You will look at it some more next week. But when people think, okay, this must be, like, there's this guy. If we want him, he's the Messiah. If, we, if, we're gonna, if he's going to fill the prophecies, we want him to fulfill the prophecies about being a reigning king. Right? We don't, we don't really care about the whole suffering servant thing. We don't even understand that part. Like, why would he have to die for us? That, that doesn't make sense. We just want him to reign. We want them to set up kingdom. We want freedom from Rome. What they don't understand, and often what we don't understand, is that the biggest problem that we have is not out there. It's in here. And that Jesus had to come and die and suffer to, to pay for our sins, to free us from captivity to our flesh, to our sin, before he would then free us from the oppression from outside set up his kingdom but people didn't quite understand that 
There's these mixed messages of what Messiah was going to do. Led to confusion, led to a mixed reception. And then there's one more major factor, and that was uh, when it came down to the religious leaders. And there was this uh, fracturing and the leadership in Israel. Namely, there was two major groups that were in power at that time. Uh, the, it's interesting to note that the and the Pharisees, and they were very different from one another. Now, it's interesting to note that the Sadducees were actually in power, that the chief priest at the time of Jesus was a Sadducee. So they had like kind of the ruling power at that time. But the Sadducees are, are an interesting group. They, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but here's a couple of things of interest. One, they, they were all about compromising. The, the, the Sadducees could really be summed up with, hey, just go along to get along. And for them, they, wanted, they just didn't want to shake things up. And so with, like with Rome or whoever was in power, they just were like, okay, let's compromise. Let's keep things just stable be, uh, between us and them. And namely, one major reason why is that the Sadducees were uh, uh, pretty wealthy for the most part. So they had a lot to lose if things went bad. And so they just were like, hey, let's go along to get along. They looked out for themselves. What's interesting uh, is that uh, though they put some value on the law. They did not see. They did not place a, a, a spiritual value on it. They saw a tra- had a traditional value placed on it, and they thought that it was good for morality. It kind of gave them a code of how people should interact with one another. So they were pro-law, but they did not believe in the resurrection. Meaning that they did not believe that when they died, they would stand before God. That there was anything really after death. They were the first, you know, uh, you only live once kind of people. And they were like, okay, we're, this is it. We're just going to make sure life is good for us during this life. And so we're go along to get along because there's nothing after this. And keeping the law is not important at all as far as our relationship with God. Because they didn't think that they would ever give an account. They were in power at that time. They were the religious leaders of that time. But they were really kind of like secularists in that sense. And then you have a complete opposite group that also had power. These ruling council, and that was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they, they like I said, they were completely opposite of the Sadducees. When the Sadducees go along to get along, Pharisees literally means to separate. The word Pharisee means to separate. And so they're all about like, no, we don't, we're not going to be like this world. We're only concerned about how do we perfectly keep the law. Because what we care about more than anything else is making sure that things are right between us and God. Because they did believe that they're going to stand and give an account one, uh, one time, uh, uh, once they die. And so they think, okay, that's all that really matters. So we, we don't care about really how we treat people here unless it comes down to how God exactly says to treat people. And we're going to just like legalistic to the core. It's all about keeping the rules. And then they added a lot more rules to the law and the tradition of the elders and all this stuff. Like this, that's the Pharisees, okay? Very different from the Sadducees. So if you've got kind of the secularists and then you have like the fundamental religious people. What's interesting to note is that when Jesus shows up at the scene, he has the harshest words for the religious fundamentalist, for the Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? 
Like in Matthew 23, that whole chapter basically is a scathing rebuke from Jesus to the Pharisees. In it, he says this, uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Wow, like that's, that's strong. Like why in the world would Jesus come down on the religious fundamentalists, why the Pharisees, who were very concerned about keeping the law and believed that there was a God, why come down on them more than the others? I think it's because they did believe that there was a God. And they did know that the law was from God. And they were to represent that to the people, represent what God is like to the people. That was their responsibility. And yet they didn't. They were hypocrites. They were known for their judgmentalism. They were known for not loving people. I mean, they, how many times did they confront Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath and what they cared about breaking the Sabbath law and not healing someone who's been sick for long time like they didn't care about people they didn't love people they did not represent what God was like though they were supposed to and Jesus rebuked them strongly for that some of us have uh, a bit of Sadducee and a bit of Pharisee in us some might lean one way or the other but all of us have both of that so we live as if God doesn't even exist and this is all life is about right now and others that we get so judgmental and so legalistic and it's like I can save myself and self-righteous and prideful, look down on others. Here's, here's what we should aim for. Instead of focusing on how to, you know, how to go along and how to focus on how to like, justify yourself, let's, let's focus on Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And Jesus loves people. And Jesus uh, lived a holy life and a loving life. Let's focus on Jesus and not on the others to, the, to his expense and not on yourself, but on him. That's the world that Jesus entered into, guys. This is a time of great confusion, political confusion, a theological confusion, and religious fracturing and confusion. As we wrap up, though, I want to make a point. Two things for us to kind of take with us as we chew on this. First is this, that during this time of silence, it's 400 years and there's all this confusion, it's worth noting that even though God was silent, he was, he was still active. Even though God was silent, he was still active. And just think about this. So take a step back and see what God was doing behind the scenes. And that through the Assyrian and through the Babylonian captivities and exiles, the nation of Israel dispersed all over the known world. And that as a result of that, they set up synagogues in almost all the major cities in the known world. And if you are familiar with the book of Acts, it was because that happened that when the gospel began to be presented and proclaimed throughout the world, they would first go to these synagogues. These gatherings of the Jewish people, and they would pronounce and announce that the Messiah has come. And they'd tell the story of the gospel. Oftentimes, the Jews would reject the message, unfortunately, but that's where they would go first. And then the message would then spread to the Gentiles in those cities. Like, 
what happened through the Assyrian and Babylonian dispersion paved the way for the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth. It's also interesting to note that through the Greek empire and the captivity that happened there, one of the big things that took place was that there became a common language amongst the major area of the world. And that most people spoke Greek so that the gospel message could be then did much more easily a huge area of the world than through uh, the Roman uh, Empire. They said the Roman roads and the protection of the Roman citizens to be able to move beyond, uh, through each city to each city. Again, made way for the gospel message to move out in powerful ways once Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. That's Though God was silent, he was still active. Even in the, the Israelite people, that what they saw in the religious leaders was either no hope, that there is no life after death, or there is no hope because even those whose whole job is to perfectly keep the law could not perfectly keep the law. Like even Nicodemus, one of the Pharisaical leaders, well, his big question to Jesus is, what must I do to be able to inherit eternal life? He knows, I'm not good enough. I can't keep this law perfectly. And they were the, they were the example to all the people that God uses these leaders to soften the hearts of people to where they could be receptive to see that, yes, there is life after death. Jesus died and rose again. There's promise of a resurrection. And we needed a Savior because we can't keep the law. Guys, God, though silent, still active, setting the stage for the gospel. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Galatians 4, 4 through 5, says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, God was at work to pave the way for the gospel to go forward to where we sit here today, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, and we're proclaiming Jesus because we know this message. Guys, God is awesome. His plan is awesome. Even though he's silent, he's still active. And let's simply say for you, if you're like me, you know that there's been times in your life, and perhaps you're in one right now, where God feels distant. And he feels silent. And he has to take heart. That though he might feel that way, know that he is always active. And he's at work to accomplish something good. In fact, that's his promise in Romans 8. He's going to work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so take heart. Trust him and rest. The last thing I would say to you from this message is this, that uh, let us us value God's word. The people in Israel for that 400 years, like they were dying to hear something from God. As we on the other side of the cross, we have God's word recorded for us. His God-breathed word. We can hear from him at any point in time. Let us not be complacent about that. That we would value God's word, that we would open it and read it and spend time 
the, uh, with him, knowing him, and being uh, encouraged to trust him more and more. May we value the word of God. What I love is that uh, God, in remarkable fashion, when he decided to finally break the silence, he did it, he did it in an awesome way. After 400 years of people of Israel not hearing from God at all, John pins these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When God chooses to speak to his people, he comes and dwells among them as the very word of God and person of Jesus. Author Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this morning, we're going to end our time by remembering and celebrating God's word that has come to us to not just tell us what he's like, but to reveal his love and what he did for us, that while we were still sinners, God, that Jesus, that Christ died for us. The word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God loves you. He is active. And his word is valuable. And his word took on flesh and died for you. He laid down his life, adoption as his chins. And he rose again so you could experience adoption as his children. When we take communion, we're remembering that. So this is open to anyone who's placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of your sins. But you'd come up and you'd take the bread and you'd take the cup. You'd remember Jesus' body broken for you and his blood spilled for you. May you rejoice in the word of God given to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is amazing. Lord, that you would give us your word that you would come and dwell, Jesus, with us, that your body would be broken for us, that your blood would be spilled for us, that you would indeed come first as a suffering servant, that you could heal us of our sin, that you could give us a heart of flesh. And then, God, that you would promise us that you're going to return and you're going to fulfill all these other prophecies of being a reigning king. And, God, you tell us when we take communion, that we're doing this and remembering that you're going to return, proclaiming that. And God, may we rejoice in that truth. God, we even ask this morning that you would return soon. God, I pray that you continue to grow us in our love for your word and for you. May you be honored in this time, the rest of this morning, as we sing your praises, for you are indeed worthy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.